Hello, and welcome to the Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics who are struggling with the church's teaching, who feel like they may not belong in the church anymore, but who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. We're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices, from three views that have changed our world, the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist, and Dominic, who's unfortunately unable to join us this episode, uh, but, but today we have a guest, uh, Sarah Larson, who's with us, um, and I'm super excited to have her on. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so Sarah is the Executive Director of AWAKE, an independent Catholic nonprofit organization working for awakening, transformation, and healing from the wounds of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. She also lifts up the voices and stories of abuse survivors in her personal blog, In Spirit and Truth. Um, I think we first connected, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the podcast. Last summer, um, I'd done the interview with Dr. Marcus Mesher about the research he had done on moral injury and clerical sexual abuse. And I think you reached out to me after that, and we've been in touch since then. Um, and I've I've left all of our conversations a little bit more hopeful that things aren't as bad, um, aren't as bad as they feel. Um, and I've really loved the work that you've told me about that you're doing. Um, so I'm super excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been catching up on your podcast episodes for the last few months, and I just I love what you're doing here and the conversations you're having. Thank you. Um, okay, I want to talk about awake quite a bit, but before we talk about awake. Um, I'd like to hear uh, kind of what's your story. I I don't imagine that you grew up as a child thinking this is the type of work that I want to do as an adult. Um, so what's kind of your story and what has been kind of focusing on that, um, your faith life and your relationship with the church? Yeah, that's a good question. You're right. This is not what I ever would have imagined for myself even five years ago. Um, I grew up Catholic in a very Catholic family. I always loved the church. I loved God. I loved being part of the Catholic community as a kid. Um, I I often say that I fell in love with Jesus through my best friend's Protestant youth group in high school, and then with the Catholic church studying theology at Marquette University. And so both those things are part of my faith story. And I studied, you know, ultimately studied theology at Marquette, and that's when I really grew in my faith a lot and um, began to really center my life around that. And so I studied theology, and then actually I was uh, nine months pregnant at my college graduation. I married my high school sweetheart while we were still in college, and we had our first child, uh, seven days after I graduated. So that was uh, cutting it a little close there. But uh, I stayed home with our, our kids for a little while and then ultimately moved into working in parish ministry. I, you know, loved, I, I loved everything about church. I wanted to serve God and serve the church. I worked in family ministry for a family of four parishes here in Milwaukee. And, you know, when I think about my past, self. I, you know, can think about my relationship with God and my discipleship growing over time. I also can think about myself. I kind of jokingly say I was a rah-rah Catholic, like everything great about the Catholic Church. I honestly had never had 
um, anything but positive experiences with the church my whole life. And I didn't really pay much attention to the fact that other people might have. So I guess my first thought is I resonate with that a lot, especially the, so, so both my wife and I studied theology in undergrad and we started dating like one month into undergrad and dated all through college and we got married Christmas break before we graduated. And she wasn't nine months preg pregnant when we graduated. She was three months pregnant when we graduated, but, um, sounds like a similar experience. Yes. <laughs> um, so it sounds like throughout your adult life, the Catholic church has been, um, a significant part of, um, not just what you do, but part of your identity and your vocation. Absolutely. So, um, how did Awake come about, um, in, uh, I, yeah, I also worked full-time in parish ministry for a while. I also felt like a rah-rah Catholic, um, for a long time. Um, and on this podcast, I've talked about some of the ways that my faith has shifted over the past several years. Um, Maybe that maybe deconstruction is the right word. Maybe it's not the right word. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, my impression is that your faith and your relationship with the church has also shifted over the past few years. Um, so how did Awake come about? And um, yeah, and maybe later we'll talk about how your own relationship with the church has shifted too. Yeah, that's a big question too. But the, you know, short version of, you know, how Awake came about is I was working in parish ministry in the summer of 2018. Um, actually, at the beginning of that summer, I, you know, I ran a huge vacation Bible school with a group of Catholic parishes. You know, one of the, one of my favorite uh, parts of my ministry, and I, I loved it. It was so joyful and so life-giving. Um, in the summer of 2018, that was the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and all the news about Theodore McCarrick. And I was, you know, working in this parish ministry job that I loved and thought I would stay in for a really long time. I didn't have any intention of going anywhere. And uh, I think I was one of those Catholics that uh, I think there's actually a lot of folks like this um, that I think the story I told myself was you know, that abuse in the church happened. It was horrible, but it was a long time ago. And then we found out about it, you know, maybe in 2002 with the, you know, Boston Globe spotlight years. When we found out about it, the whole church came together and fixed it. And now we've solved the problem. And it was sad, but we don't really have to think about it anymore. I don't think I would have ever said that out loud, but I think subconsciously that's kind of how I thought about abuse in the church, which again, I think is really pretty common. Yeah. And for whatever reason, uh, some combination of my openness and the Holy Spirit, um, I feel like those news stories that summer just really broke my heart. They really... Uh, got through to me in a way that other news about this issue in the church had not before. And um, I spent a lot of the fall of 2018 
reading and learning and listening to survivors and praying and crying and yelling at God and questioning everything. And uh, ultimately, I felt called to leave my work in parish ministry to do this. I had no idea what this would be. Uh, I I just knew that I was feeling called to something that I couldn't and I couldn't do it while being employed by a Catholic parish that I needed to be able to be fully honest and fully free to speak hard truths. So I, you know, I quit my job. I started writing a blog uh, that, you know, you mentioned in Spirit and Truth. I was really at the beginning, just my way of reflecting on what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing and sharing it with Catholics I was connected with. And so from that blog over a few months, there were other Catholics that were interested, that were showing, you know, saying, I'm thinking and feeling these same things too. I feel like we need to do something. And so that March of 2019, a small group of people started meeting in my living room to talk about all of this, to process together. And that small group of people is what eventually became awake. So very humble beginning in my living room in Milwaukee. And we really had, we did not have big dreams. You know, we were thinking very small at the time, just feeling like we had to do something. And uh, I did not exactly sign up to uh, found a nonprofit organization. That was not the intention necessarily at the beginning. It was just building a ministry, responding to this, this, you know, call of the Holy Spirit. And and then this happened. Um, I also resonate a lot with that, with that perspective on the abuse crisis in the church as this was a problem a few decades ago. Everyone found out in the early 2000s, the bishops came together, they wrote their document, and they fixed the problem. And I mean, I, I definitely told people all the lines, you know, the things that I had heard from other people that I'm not even sure are true of like, you know, like teachers abuse kids at a higher rate than priests and things like that, or it's just a few bad apples. Um, the problem's pretty much solved. Uh, mm-hmm. um, do you know what, uh, what about, um, that summer, um, and about, um, about the stuff coming out with McCarrick? Um, or the stuff coming out of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, or even circumstances in your life. Do you know what what specific parts of that combination allowed you to, or allowed the Holy Spirit to like break through in a way that um, wasn't possible before then? Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought about it a lot, really. Like, why did it happen for me then? And why did it happen for me? And maybe it hasn't for some other Catholics I think, you know, to be fully honest, I think it was the news about McCarrick made me feel personally betrayed. You know, at this point, I know so many abuse survivors, and that's really the foundation and motivation of the work that we do with Awake. But at the beginning, I was a person who you know, was giving my life to the church. As you know, from working in parish ministry, everyone working in parish ministry is overworked and underpaid and giving their whole heart to it because they love it. And that was me. And like you, 
I've defended the church, uh, defended the bishops all along the way. And then when I started really digging into the stuff with McCarrick and realizing, wait, people are still lying. Like people in power today are still lying and covering up abuse. I felt personally betrayed and I was really angry, which for me was actually an interesting experience because you know, I have very many vices, but anger is not something that I typically struggle with a lot. But I was so, so angry. And I remember going to mass on a on a week, you know, weekday evening pretty soon after this was all coming out and um, enough that the priest actually addressed it in his homily, which, you know, some priests were doing at the time and some were not. But I feel so grateful that this priest really spoke to it directly in his homily and he said it's okay if you're angry like it's good to be anger angry anger is an appropriate reaction to injustice like this and that for me um and he was a priest i really trusted and so for me it was really helpful to hear that to hear that it was okay to be angry and um you know i think there was just for me this sense of I cannot be in this church and and speak for this church and stand up for this church unless I am doing something to address this. And it became really just a personal conviction. And I don't really uh, I don't really know what made me open at that moment, but I'm grateful for it. Uh, um, a week started in your living room the following March. Um, how, how did it grow um, after that point? And you said your intention wasn't to start a nonprofit, but that's what it became. Um, what was that process like? And then, um, yeah, uh, what's it like today? How has it grown up to, you know, now 2024? So we started really slow and carefully. And I, I'm really grateful that we had the wisdom to know how much we didn't know and maybe the humility there because we, you know, a few of the people involved with Founding Awake had some direct connection to abuse, but most of us didn't. And most of us didn't really know that much about this. And so we started off actually using the tagline, listen, learn, lead. And we spent a lot of time at the beginning on that listening and learning, you know, just having lots of conversations with people, with fellow Catholics, with people who had impacted, been impacted by abuse by, um, with survivors and reading a lot. And so we were kind of in this slow process of kind of discerning what we could and should do as this tiny little, you know, group of lay Catholics. And just as we were, really starting to to be ready to do more of the leading, right? To do to grow more. And we were planning more in-person events in Milwaukee and uh, then COVID hit. And so we had to shift all of our plans and move things online. I can distinctly remember the conversation we had about whether we should get a Zoom subscription for a year or whether we would really be using Zoom a year from now. 
which seems hilarious at this point because I do pretty much all of my work on Zoom, but we we just shifted our programming and our offerings to the virtual space. And when that happened, you know, we just started inviting people outside of Milwaukee. And it was amazing to us how quickly we found more and more people throughout the United States and even beyond that who really resonated with what we were trying to do. And go ahead. So your your initial vision for Awake was local, was to keep it uh, really within the Milwaukee area? Yes, that was uh, in our mission statement from the beginning. It, at the beginning, our uh, mission statement said, in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, period. And then uh, as we kind of grew, we updated our mission statement and made it in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and beyond. And then our uh, last summer, we officially you know, removed that geographic distinction from our mission statement because we re- recognized that the where wasn't as important to us as the who. And so, you know, what we found when we started just doing this work, hosting online events, uh, beginning to have some offerings for survivors is that we were speaking to a real need, both among Catholics who were really concerned about this and, and wanted a space where they could think about it, talk about it, pray about it, support survivors, feel like they could do something. And so we were connecting with a lot of those folks. And then we were connecting with a lot of abuse survivors as well. At the beginning, primarily those who had remained Catholic and hadn't been able to find a place yet uh, for themselves. And then um, over time, actually more and more survivors who are not Catholic, but still resonated with our approach started connecting. So it really kind of became a snowball thing where uh, we started, you know, offering these events and people just kept on finding us and kept on finding us. And so it was, it became more and more clear over time that this call that we kind of all experienced together was to something more than our local archdiocese and that it there became a point when it felt um, disingenuous to, you know, to pretend that we were a small local organization when really uh, we were reaching people all across the country. So you mentioned your experience of as Awake was growing, it was meeting a need. And you talked about like the the specific approach that Awake has. Um, what makes Awake different? I mean, there are other organizations that work with survivors of, of clerical sexual abuse in the church. What what need do you think Awake is filling or what is unique about the approach uh, that makes it different from uh, other other organizations? That's a good question. I, you know, I would say that one thing that I noticed at the very beginning of this journey was news stories that talked about abuse in the church would often interview two two people, there'd be two voices in the story. And one would be a spokesperson from the, for the church in some way, a, you know, public relations person for the diocese. And the other would be um, an advocate of some kind uh, speaking very strongly about, you know, the, the deficiencies of the church's approach. And there was often a 
truth in both of this in what they were saying in both of those voices but it also felt like there was kind of missing uh some kind of um voice i wouldn't say in the middle that's not exactly the way to think of it but uh that was oh willing to engage the complexity of this issue to recognize that yes there has been real progress and yes there are still serious problems and um we recognized also that there's not been a lot of opportunities for ordinary Catholics and abuse survivors to be together in community with one another. And that that bridge building has become a huge part of, of who we are and what we do. That uh, we are, you know, Awake is not a nonprofit serving survivors. We are a community of abuse survivors and concerned Catholics and allies working together. And I I think that is pretty unique and it's really been, we're highly invested in community. I mean, that's the the word we use to describe ourselves the most. And, you know, maybe part of that comes from the fact that myself and actually several of the other founders, you know, have a background in ministry. I come to really believe that God works in community from what I saw in my time in parish ministry. And so we really invested in that heavily in relationships and community building uh, at the service of this mission. And I think that does make a difference. And I think people do experience that when they connect with us, that this is, uh, we say this, we're, our organization is about people, not issues. And I think and hope that really comes through in the way we interact with each other. Um, when I was first, first talking with you and first looking into Awake, um, um, something that was on my mind, uh, a good friend of mine um, in the past year or two had talked about, uh, we were talking about um, spaces for, for Catholics who've been harmed in and by the church. And in our experience, the reactions that most people have who've, uh, who've been harmed in the church, um, either there's there, a common reaction is um, to defend the institution or to defend the particular priest or leader or, or to like a defensive stance um, as if the harm that happened to me is somehow threatening the church in some way. Um, or another common um, response is um, a really critical response that like, well, why even stay? Um, just burn the whole thing down type of type of mentality and, and, and a lack of a space of of a third space where both the truth and reality of the harm that someone experienced is taken seriously and isn't seen as a, and isn't seen as threatening, but also like um, the parts of the Catholic faith that are still important to this person are also taken seriously. Um, that was my impression of awake when I first saw awake. Does that that concept of a third space like? like resonate with you? And do you see awake as occupying that space? Yes, absolutely. Actually, I heard that episode. Uh, and I think that's when I reached out to you actually was after hearing you and your guests talk about that. I also connected with her because I was like, yes, this is, this is it. And I was not familiar with that language of third space until maybe the last year or so. But 
I think it makes a lot of sense and really is kind of what organically has grown grown within Awake. And, you know, that third space we're trying to create is really broad. Um, so includes people who are no longer Catholic, but are seeking a compassionate, supportive community and people who are barely holding on and maybe very angry and, you know, people who are who are very devout and maybe just beginning to dip their toes in. And so all those people are engaged with Awake. And I really, I really value that. And I think we all do the fact that it's not it's not a narrow group of people. We're trying to make it um, as broad and inclusive and welcoming as possible to people who share this mission. I also think it's really important for us as Catholics and for Catholics who care about this issue to recognize the importance of having third spaces or having independent uh, organizations like AWAKE to serve survivors because there are some really good things happening in at least a handful of dioceses where they're really doing good work. And I've spoken to people working in dioceses that are really trying hard to serve survivors. The reality is, is that a lot of abuse survivors are just never going to trust something that is funded by the Catholic diocese where their abuse happened. Um, and that is not... That is not because none of these people are doing good work or none of these offerings from dioceses are valuable. It's just a reality of the institutional betrayal and the lack of trust. And so I think when we as Catholics think about what should the church do, I think we need to really think about the church in a broad sense and recognize that there are pieces that might be best done and should be done by a diocese or a religious order or the institution where the harm occurred. But that can't be everything, and that many people are never, never going to trust offerings that come from there. So then how do we as church continue to reach out to those people? So that's that's part of what we're trying to do. Yeah, um, I, I'd forgotten until you mentioned it, uh, that... I, that um, it was in the episode with Monica Pope last year that we talked we talked about the third space. Um, and what you're saying there, I recently had a conversation with someone who who was talking about um, uh, their diocese or neighboring diocese offering offering a retreat um, for survivors um, hosted hosted by the diocese and um, yeah, and that brought up a conversation of like, I don't know if just what you would say, if all survivors trust to the diocese enough to make themselves vulnerable to anyone affiliated with the diocese in any way. Um, in the bio that I read um, that you gave me, uh, Awake was described as an independent organization. Um, how how do you balance being independent? I mean, there's there's such a like. Oh, we get this theology from Vatican II of like everyone who's baptized is the church is a part of the body of Christ, um, and uh, but there's also a real element where the institutional church uh, structures, parishes, the diocese, the religious orders, those are also seen as as the church and have in our understanding of ecclesiology of our understanding of what church is 
those are essential parts of the church. Um, but I'm hearing you kind of talk about being independent from the institution, but still being in the church. Um, is that what I'm hearing? And um, how do you navigate that? That sounds difficult. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. I, I would say it's tricky for me personally, and it's tricky for us as an organization because, you know, we we never want to set ourselves up as somehow opposed to the institution. Uh, um, and that's really not never our intention. We just believe that we as the body of Christ, have a responsibility and that there is a need that needs to be met here. And for various reasons, it's not being met in other ways. And so we have a responsibility, you know, to do something. That's, I feel very strongly uh, that call, you know, to co-responsibility. And, but it's a tricky thing for us to navigate what it looks like to both be, um, you know, for me to be going to mass, you know, on Sunday at my parish, to be a member of a specific diocese, to also know that there is important change that can only come from the institutional leaders. Like there are things that we can do and there are things that we cannot and so we really try to lean into the things we can do, but also hope and work that are the way that we talk and think about these things, our efforts to lift up the voices of survivors, our gentle but persistent advocacy will help shape the way that those with the institutional power respond as well. So I don't have an easy answer for it, but you're exactly hitting on that question that's really the core of who we are as an organization. And I think for me, at least personally, I just really have to try to stay close to Jesus and trust that he's going to lead me in where I need to be and that it's not going to be away from the church. It's going to be deeper into what the church truly is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump around on the outline a little bit. Um, this this past fall, um, the Pope wrote a document on Saint Teresa of Lisieux, and uh, in that in that letter, he he shared um, a passage from a uh, story of a soul. Uh, so this is a short quote from Saint Therese. She says, uh, "I understood that if the Church had a body composed of different members, the most necessary and most noble of all could not be lacking to it, and so I understood that the Church had a heart." And that this heart was burning with love. Um, and that passage at the time and still now really, it really strikes me um, as resonating with my own experience in the church of the past several years because of the abuse crisis, because of lots of different things that have happened in the church over the past eight years of, I feel like a constant, like, I'm in the process of like purging away places and people in the church where I put my trust that maybe my trust wasn't deserved. Like how many people who, I mean, I remember when I worked at the parish and we, you know, we had the parish library of resources and there'd be some scandal that came out about someone. And I'm like, man, I better take those books off the shelf. Right. 
Um, but I felt like not just professionally, but personally doing that all the time and just experience of disappointment after disappointment. Um, and not just disappointment, but like betrayal, like some of the disappointments felt much more personal than others. Um, and it became really difficult for me and still is difficult, um, to intellectually like distinguish the sacraments from the institution. Like I, I know all the apologetics points, like, and I know all of that, but when like, but when it's like the person in, in a collar who represents the institution, who is a necessary part of the sacraments that I'm receiving, like experientially, it's very difficult to distinguish those things. Um, but what St. Therese is saying here is that the heart of the church isn't the institution and it isn't the church building and it isn't the pastor or the bishop or the pope, but the heart of the church is love and those who are loved. Um, and I think really specifically going back to the gospels, like, and Jesus's command to love God and love others. And, um, that the heart of the church is, uh, those who love and serve the vulnerable and the powerless. And not just those who serve the vulnerable and the powerless, but the vulnerable and the powerless themselves are the heart of the church. Um, and that's struck me, um, thinking about um, the place that the Lord is leading me to work in the church, which I don't know what that looks like yet. Um, but that's it also strikes me as the work that I see Awake is doing as both serving the heart of the church um, and also like being the heart of the church serving others um how does that how does that resonate with you and how does that resonate with your experience in a way yeah that's beautiful thank you for drawing that passage to my attention i i think that makes a lot of sense i think it puts into words you know something that i've tried to kind of figure out uh in this in this journey with awake and i think I don't know if this answers your question, but the the two things that I would say maybe is one, like I've had to ask myself a lot of questions about do I worship the Catholic Church or do I worship God? And that those are not equivalent. Um, I might worship God in the Catholic Church, but I really, when everything was shaken underneath me, which is how the beginning of this journey for me really was, I really had to ask a lot of hard questions of myself about like, who was I really following? And was it Jesus, you know? And for me, one of the things that has been so beautiful and graced about this journey, about this ministry is that like, I am getting to know Jesus in such a deeper way than I did before. And it's through these people that who have experienced such deep harm and betrayal in the church and continue to seek Jesus, continue to try to be close to God. And whether that's, you know, inside the church or out of it, what I, what I see is faith that is, that takes really, really hard work. And it really challenges me, like, okay, I'm, you know, am I, am I doing the hard work that it takes to really, you know, be grounded in my faith in the midst of all of this? So 
I also have this sense that, you know, if we talk about being, if I want to be close to Jesus, Jesus was very clear about where he was, right? In, in the hurting, in the vulnerable and, you know, at the cross. And I feel like I am in a very graced position to be with people at the cross and that's where Jesus is. And so for me, I, you know, those are of course beautiful theological ideas that, you know, in the nitty gritty day to day, like, gosh, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it just feels hard and it feels like I'm somehow separated from the church. But the other thing that, you know, I will say to groups of survivors awake host these uh, what we call survivor circles, which is like a peer support group for those who've experienced sexual abuse by Catholic leaders. And I'm really blessed to, you know, facilitate several of those circles. And when we, um, as sometimes happen, people are talking about their struggles with the church and they'll say the church this and the church that, and it's very, you know, well-deserved angers and criticisms and things that I understand and agree with. And sometimes I like to kind of land that discussion by looking around at the people in the circle and say, like, remember, like we here gathered in this Zoom room coming from all over the country with our woundedness and brokenness and pain and anger and all of it, like we are the church too. And I have to really cling to that during the harder moments and to to really believe what I what I understand is the theology of the church is that like this is really the church just as much as a gathering of bishops, you know, in a circle. And so those are some of the things, at least that that I navigate or that help me try to make sense of it. Um one question that comes to mind is uh because it's a question I'm asking you because I'm asking it myself. Um, if you can, exp- if you experience Christ um, in uh, in the survivors who you work with, and and minister to Christ and ministering to them and being ministered by Christ um, in your relationship with them, and experience church in these small groups and these small communities. Um, what keeps you going back to like the building with the priest and the sacraments? Um, I ask because, um, something I've been wrestling with over the past few months is, um, when it looks like there's so much like sin and corruption in the ecclesial institution, when there's like the church talks about like structures of sin. When it seems like there's so much, so much structures of sin, of abuse of power that seem to be baked in, um, at what point is just participating in mass, me participating in the structure of sin, me giving validation to this being okay? Um, and I still go to mass, but I go to mass now asking that question. Um, uh, what has that experience been like and how have you navigated that? Yeah, it sounds like we wrestle with a lot of the same things, Paul. <laughs> we should be friends. Um, yeah, I I don't have an easy answer to that question. That has been like my struggle and journey for the past five years. 
I would say a couple of things. One, I maintain a deep conviction and a deep belief in the power of Christ and the sacraments. And I, I believe in the Eucharist and I, I don't want to go without that. I believe that God shows up there and manages to show up even when all the human beings uh, do everything they can to get in his way and, you know, make it harder maybe, uh, but that like God is faithful to that promise to be present there. So I really believe that in a very like deep way. But I was, I would also say for me, there's just a very uh, practical level of finding a home, a specific place in the church, a specific parish that can feel like home to me where I experience love and joy and peace and hope. Um, it, it had to be, you know, I, we found a parish and that uh, the priest spoke about abuse every once in a while in a way that made me feel that he really understood this and that I could be myself and speak about my work and all of that and be welcome there. But also, I don't have to all the time, right? Like, I can also be a parishioner uh, in this beautiful multi-ethnic parish and clap along with the gospel choir and give everyone hugs. And I still experience a lot of joy in that. And so, you know, in a very practical way, it's something I feel like I need. It also helps me to personally to stay grounded in the fact that uh, that there's a church bigger than me and what I think and what I want and what I'm working for. Like there can always be a danger when you, you think you're following the Holy spirit. And you know, that's been my conviction is that that awake really is a work of the Holy spirit. But if you don't stay grounded in something outside of that, it can quickly become uh, just as uh, problematic, I think as any other institution or group, you know? And so I'm very conscious of, that as well. Like, I think we are doing good things and I think we are listening and discerning prayerfully. But personally, I need something outside of myself to, you know, to help me stay grounded and not, um, not get lost in, in thinking somehow that, you know, we're forming a new church over here that's yeah. better than the one that Jesus founded. Yeah. I think that, um, both history and just assessing different church, different groups within the church over the past few years that um, the idea that I or my little group knows better than everyone else is like the very quick path to being just as dysfunctional as, as the worst of it. Um, how has your work in Awake um, changed you the most? What has been uh, the most, some of the most challenging things, but also or what or what in this work has given you uh, the most hope also? Thank you for asking that question in that way, because those realities are both very true for me. And I, I think sometimes people assume it's only hard and bad. <laughs> you know, that it's this huge sacrifice that I'm, I'm making. Um, but that, you know, but really there is so much hope 
in it, but it's easy to start with the hard and the, you know, the change. I would say, you know, to be perfectly honest, when I said yes to this, which I definitely, as I shared with you, felt like stepping out onto this, uh, leaving my job and stepping on this journey definitely felt like that I was saying yes to an invitation from God. I also feel like I had no idea what I was saying yes to, which is true. I think of a lot of our big yeses. I mean, when I got married, I had no idea when I was, you know, when we wanted to have our first child, I had no idea, you know? And so in some ways that's true of a lot of our big leaps is I, I didn't know and I didn't realize how much it would break my heart and how much it would really deeply change me as a person. And, you know, we've spoken a little bit about that, you know, the way it's impacted my, my faith and my relationship with the church. Um, but honestly, I'm a, I'm a little bit more serious of a person now. Uh, this is not a, uh, I'm not as fun at cocktail parties when you ask me what I do for work. Um, you know, I say that in a joking way, but the reality is, is I am now the, the bearer of many, many really hard, heavy, horrible stories. And I carry those with me all the time. And so I carry those with me when I, you know, interact with my teenage son. I carry those with me when I go to mass, you know, I carry those with me when I interact with priests. So that's never not there for me. And, you know, even though I'm someone who has not experienced sexual abuse, I'm, I'm very conscious now of how perilous the world is, how much, uh, how much hurt can happen both inside the church and outside of it. And I'm a little, maybe a lot slower to trust I had never really experienced deep hurt or betrayal by someone I trusted um, until kind of all of this. And so I, I was, you know, pretty trusting and, and very open hearted. And I try to maintain that. But, you know, to be honest, I do have a little bit more, you know, I hold back a little bit more before trusting people. I'm a little bit, especially religious people. And, um, you know, I think that does kind of get to the decor of who you are as a person. I would say, you know, in terms of most challenging, I think a lot of people assume that the hardest part is, you know, listening to stories of sexual abuse. And, you know, I'm very honored that many, many people have chosen to share with me their stories and sometimes in a lot of detail, if that's something that is, you know, they want to share. Um, and that, that is hard, but I've also come to understand that when someone is sharing, speaking those words to me and sharing that with me, that's actually a moment of, of hope and grace because they are choosing to speak them and they're trusting me to speak them. And so while they're hard for me to hear, uh, there's also like something beautiful and good is happening in the moment of bringing those things to light and speaking them to another human being. So that's difficult. But I would say, honestly, the hardest thing is um, the fact that there is still so much opposition to this kind of work, to this kind of ministry. 
to telling the truth about these things, that there's so much opposition within the church, within my spiritual family, within my spiritual home. And that's, you know, from from bishops and people, you know, leaders, priests, people in authority. And it's also from lay Catholics who who still say sometimes really horrible, harmful things. And um, maybe just as much so, it's painful to me to look around at the people that I see as my my family. You know, the Catholic Church has always been my family, my home, and feel like so many of them don't care about the thing that is breaking my heart. But more importantly, like these people that I love are being hurt and still being hurt. And it it's really hard for me to see people not care. How do you... There's two things that seemed that that seemed seemed weighty in what you said. Both the carrying of uh, other people's um, stories, t- sometimes terrible stories, and also the um, confronting the reality of people in the church, your brothers and sisters in the church, not taking this very serious thing seriously. Um, in the counseling world, uh, uh, in school, they always talk about like, I hear every class kind of ad nauseum, like self-care is really important for counselors. Self-care is really important for counselors. And it kind of becomes, it kind of becomes a trope. Um, how do you carry those things, um, and still function and still have like joy and not, and not just kind of like sink into a heaping pile of bitterness? Uh, that is a good question. Um, better someday than uh, some days than others. I'll be honest. Like it sometimes it really is feels too heavy and too much. And what I try to do, what I, what I tell myself to do is to remember that like, this is, this is too much for me to carry. It is too much for me to do. It's too much for us as an organization to do. But fortunately, we are not the savior. Uh, that would be, that position is already taken. And I don't have to, it's not for me to carry, right? It's for me to receive and for for Jesus to carry. Now that, again, it's like that, in theory, I think that makes a lot of sense. That doesn't mean it's easy. Um, I would also say that doing this work in community is really, really important to me. And I would venture to say probably all of us. That's why, you know, Awake is, you know, we have a staff, a leadership team, a board of directors, volunteers, and we do this together. And so we carry this together. And so it is actually much, I experience a lot of a feeling of isolation sometimes in Catholic spaces where it feels like this isn't understood or people aren't comfortable or willing to talk about it. And that makes me feel sometimes very alone. But, you know, when I'm connected with this, the awake community with all the good people coming together around this, then it's the sense of something that we're doing together 
Um, and I, you know, I need to lean on that a lot. I would also say that, you know, I do, I work really hard to have hope. I mean, I would, I've understood that as a choice that I need to make and that I need to make every day. And I actually spent some time kind of early in this journey, like trying to learn about and understand what does hope mean? Because honestly, I, I feel like if you do a objective assessment of the situation there in the church and the pace of change and what needs to be done, I don't know that there's a lot of reason for optimism, to be perfectly honest. But that's not the same thing as hope. Um, and I think there is every, every reason to be hopeful because ultimately this is God's church and God is in charge. And uh, all I can do is my little piece of it and just trust that other people are also going to come together and do their little pieces of it and that and that God's going to do with that uh, what needs to be done. And so that helps me remain hopeful and also being grounded in the real day-to-day work of awake and especially, you know, walking with survivors and their family members and other people who have been impacted and seeing that we're making a difference right now. So I both have to keep my my eyes on kind of this bigger picture and the fact that there is still so much work to be done and it's uh, we need to have deep change, um, you know, transformation of, of culture and a change of heart in, in our church most, more than anything else, I think. And that is big and that is slow and that is frustrating. But, you know, when I get to just talk to somebody um, and be there for them and accompany them and see them growing and healing and, um, you know, finding finding hope themselves. Well, that that stuff matters, you know, in a very deep way. And so for me, I would I couldn't do this work if we only did kind of like big picture advocacy and education stuff, you know, because that stuff is, it, it kind of can be like, can be very wearing on your soul. Um, but I think one of the the graces of the way that we set this path at the beginning is we always had this sense that we needed to have kind of this holistic approach, that we weren't going to be doing just advocacy or just education or just prayer, or just survivor support, like that we would do all those things together. And I think the fact that I get to remain grounded in you know, that very practical day-to-day people's lives helps me not be so devastated and overwhelmed by the bigger awfulness, if that makes sense. Do you ever wish you could go back to, uh, to Sarah, uh, 10 years ago, Sarah in 2014, where, uh, you had not yet awakened to these, these realities and you, uh, we're still like raw, raw Catholicism. That's a really good question. I have never thought about it. I mean, life sure felt easier then and simpler then. But I also don't really think that we as Christians are called to easy and simple. So 
I guess I would I would have to say that it would be tempting to be perfectly honest, but that if what I'm really knowing if what I what I'm really about is knowing and loving and following Jesus, then this is the path he has for me and following that is that's the only way that I'm going to I don't know, be happy is not even the phrase I would use because I'm not happy a lot of the time when you think about all of this. But um, that's the path to holiness. That's the path to a meaningful life. That's the path to following Christ, for me at least. I was just recently listening to um, one of my favorite podcasts is uh, is The Bible Project. Um, uh, um, Protestant scripture scholars. Um, I think they're really excellent, but they're going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and they're going through the the Beatitudes, and they they were doing kind of a word study of the different Greek and Hebrew words used there. That they were talking about um, how what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes is he's speaking to a crowd of people who um, who are marginalized and powerless in society. And he's using the language of the time where if someone would look at someone who had a second house, they'd be like, that person's living the good life. Or like, you know, someone gets to go on vacation, that person's living the good life. And Jesus is saying, and what's translated in English is like, blessed are you. What he's saying is those who are in poverty and powerless, they are living the good life. Why? Because the kingdom of God is present for them. And they, they're explaining this more, and they're like, what Jesus is saying is that those who are living and experiencing the world uh, in a way that seems to be the opposite of what they think the kingdom of God should be and what the opposite of the kingdom of God is, they're living in poverty and injustice and persecution, etc. Jesus is saying, um, when you feel like you're not living in the kingdom, that's when the kingdom is closest to you. Uh, that felt like a word of encouragement and hope for me when I heard it. Uh, it's, it came up as, as you were speaking. Um, I can say that I have experienced um, the conversations I've had with you uh, as bringing me hope, uh, both in terms of like talking with someone who understands what what I'm saying and like, uh, even just as you were talking about, it's so hard to talk sometimes with other Catholics and you're like, this is so important and so serious. Why don't you see how important and serious this is? Um, it's hopeful to talk with other, other people who understand that. And then also the, the way that I've heard you talk about both in this conversation and in our other conversations of the work that you do with survivors and the way that that work is like, um, bringing the kingdom of God to them in concrete ways. It's like, yeah, I get caught up thinking about how do we have institutional and structural change? Not that that's not important. That's really important. But it's also like, actually, this is still just about people uh, as well. Um, I don't know. I threw, I was just kind of like throwing a lot of things out there, but any thoughts at all? Yeah, um, I'm processing what you shared there about the Beatitudes, and that's really, that's really beautiful. I um, I've had an interesting experience 
praying with scripture over the last few years. And I've always loved scripture and have, you know, read a fair amount. And I feel like I just hear, I'm hearing things in whole different new ways, you know, since, since kind of taking this path and it's beautiful. I mean, I was, I've been praying with the Psalms a lot. It's just like, wow, like this is like these scriptures just speak to all the mess of our lives and all the human emotions. And, um, I was just reading, uh, people, stories of people reaching out to Jesus for healing and the words that they use reaching out to him, you know, help me, Lord, Lord, have mercy, you know, please, Lord, those, those phrases. And like, they're just, there's so much there that just really gets to the heart of where I am and where, you know, I feel like so many suffering people are like, you know, it's just, there's something really beautiful in seeing these things, I think, in scripture. And then as I'm saying that, I'm also thinking, and I also know people for whom scripture has been turned into a tool of abuse. And this is this is what the reality of my faith like is like, I think, really, is that as soon as I start saying that, or I, you know, I spoke about the beauty of the Eucharist and the Mass, and I know people for whom that was used as a a tool of, of grooming and abuse. And it's a really complicated thing, I guess, to not, I guess, it's a really complicated thing to hold intention that there is so much goodness and beauty in our Catholic faith. And many of those good and beautiful things have been distorted and twisted to harm people. And I don't think you know, I think the reality of my faith life, and honestly, I think it should be something that all of us as our Catholics are aware of, is like that those two things are true about good and beautiful things can be twisted and perverted to hurt people. And so how do we be careful about the way we speak about these things? How could I maybe share something beautiful that I have, heard, you know, taken away from a psalm? in a way with enough gentleness and humility that someone who's been hurt by scripture, by the misuse of scripture could, could maybe hear something true and, and good and beautiful for themselves there. So that's what I'm reflecting about. That is not what you asked about at all, but that's what I'm thinking about. I, uh, I, I would add to that, that, that I suspect that your credibility as a person and the work that you do is if first step to someone being able to hear what, what you have to say. Yeah. yeah. I, I, hopefully that is the case. I mean, I think you love people first, you show them that you care about them and trust them and, or, and that, and that they can trust you and then anything else can flow from that. And I think that's so much of what we need to be doing as Catholics in the world today in a lot of, a lot of ways is, showing people we love them first. And um, that doesn't mean that we don't speak truth, but if people don't know their love, they can't, they can't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation and I'm looking at the time. The time's <laughs> flying by. Um, to move towards wrapping up, um, 
we try and end our conversations um, with something uh, s- something practical um, to call uh, to call listeners to as a way to suggest um, next steps they can take. Um, so, I guess with that question in mind, are there are there suggestions you can make for listeners for how they can take that next step to um, uh, to wake up to to like being open to seeing the reality of abuse in the church and to take a step to doing something about that within their own circles of influence. So I think what I usually advise people to do if they're able, and there are sometimes reasons that someone is not able to do this and I understand, but to start with listening to survivors more than start with following the news, um, I mean, I think it's enough to say there's still some serious serious problems. Please trust me on that um, or do your research. But that for me, I think following the news, especially all the bad news about this, doesn't necessarily uh, lead someone to feel like there's, you know, to feel called to action um, and to it just could be overwhelming, to be honest. And so like, I really encourage people to start with that human connection of listening to the voices of survivors. And so, you know, that might be in news stories. Uh, I would also really invite people to read the survivor stories on Awake's website, because what we've really done there is try to center the survivors' voices and stories and uh, let them speak for themselves and represent the diversity of their experiences and um, and and show them as people, right? Our fellow brothers and sisters, human beings, um, not objects of pity, um, but our brothers and sisters. And so I think if you start there, uh, that's a that can be really helpful because I think a change of heart is is the first and deepest thing that needs to happen. Um, perhaps more important than any exterior action you can take. So I would, you know, encourage people to start there. And then just like you said, think about how you can engage in your, um, in your sphere of influence, the people you're connected with. So if you're engaged in a parish, you know, you might think about has this ever been talked about in our parish? Is there, you know, if I mentioned, you know, if I could have a conversation with my pastor or with a lay minister at my parish about, you know, what what could we do? Could we have a discussion? Could we um, include something in the bulletin? Could we have petitions at least once a month in our, you know, in our prayers at mass? Could we um, address whatever abuse history we have at our parish? directly you know like what in a practical way could happen in our in our parish i also know a lot of people are not engaged in a parish community and so but i think that all of this holds true with whatever communities that you're connected with in religious spaces especially is like can you be the person who's not afraid to bring this up it doesn't mean you have to beat people over the head with it all the time um but you know can you mention what you're thinking and feeling and invite, create a safe space for other people to do the same? Because what I've found is, gosh, I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of Catholics out there that do want to 
talk about this and, and think about this. And we have to open up those conversations. The other thing is to recognize is that um, you don't know the experiences of the people you're speaking to, the people next to you in your parish, the people, you know, in your Bible study or, you know, your coworkers. Like there are probably people in your in that you are connected with who have experiences of abuse whether it's in the church or in other spaces, but that they haven't told you about. And so I would love us to, as a, as Catholics, be mindful that in every conversation we're having, we could be speaking with or be being heard by someone who has experiences of, of trauma and particularly experiences of trauma in the church. And that changes the way you think and talk and, you know, I still hear so many survivors who say, you know, the especially including people who are, you know, still going to mass, they're just horrified by the things that they hear people around them say about those victims that just want money and all of whatever it is. Um, so, you know, be the brave person who like calls it out in whatever, you know, place you are and, you know, encourages, gently encourages people to do better. Um I could tell you a lot more things. We have a whole list of things on Awake's website, but that's, and I guess I would say the other thing is, is don't try to do it alone. You know, like if you're feeling, if you're listening to this and you're feeling like convicted in some way, like reach out to, you know, whether it's Awake, whether it's, you know, some Catholic friends you have, like don't try to carry it and figure it out alone. Try to do it in community with other people. Um. Man, I just want to keep this conversation going, but we have to end. Um, uh, is there anything uh, coming up with Awake that you want to let people know about? Um, I'm going to ask three questions. So that's the first one. Uh, the second is, how can people support Awake? And then the third is, how can people um, find you? Okay. You might have to remind me of all of those. But um, so things that are coming up with Awake. Um, well, first, I should, I will you know, always want to say if you yourself have experienced sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and you are listening to this, like we always, we have things for you. We have circles, um, we have conversations, we have support. And so, you know, please know that that is always available. Um, and that's also true if you have a family member who has experienced that kind of abuse. So I'll say that first. Um, we have a lot of online events through Awake. I don't know when this is airing. Uh, on um, We have our annual Way of the Cross with Survivors, which is a really, really beautiful uh, prayer experience. That's on Monday, February 19th. So I think probably that'll have already passed by the time people are listening, but we will have the recording available on our website. Um, then we have an event series called Courageous Conversations, which is a uh, speaker series with a second, a follow-up event for small group discussion. And I know you got to join us for one of those recently, Paul. It was great to have you. Our next one is a really great one. Um, March 14th, we have a presentation by Dr. Diane Langberg, who is a very well-known author um, and psychologist. And it's about power and abuse in the church. And we're going to have two survivors from our community in dialogue with her. And then later this year, our final Courageous Conversation of the Year is uh, 
an event um, on Vosestes and accountability for bishops with J.D. Flynn of The Pillar and Ann Barrett Doyle of Bishop Accountability, which is so those two very different voices talking about something really important. So you can sign up on our website for all of those things. Uh, so that was the first question. Um, what were the other two? How can people support? Oh, wait. Um, so, you know, the, the thing we always are hoping for is your engagement with uh, coming to events, reading our blog, subscribing to our newsletter. Uh, prayer is always appreciated. And, you know, if you are able to offer financial support, that would be amazing. We have a lot of big dreams. There's a lot that we want to do and we have a capacity issue. We need to grow to be able to uh, serve in the way that ways that we want to. So all of that would be wonderful. And you can follow us on social media. Uh, at oh, It's different on every platform because awake is a very common word. You can't get that everywhere. But if you look for awake community, uh, you'll find us um, on social media. And then our website is uh, awakecommunity.org. And that has our social links and all of our website information and our blog and subscribe and all the stuff is there. Excellent. And then how can people find you? Uh, you can find me personally. Uh, if you want to connect on LinkedIn, um, you can find me there. And um, sorry, I want to make one more pitch that I forgot. Uh, a great action that people can take that's very simple right now is on Awake's website, you can find our open letter to survivors, which is a letter of apology, a gesture of solidarity and support with survivors that we invite Catholics to sign. Um, it's really meaningful and you can find that on our website. So that's a great simple step that you can take. Sarah, it was really great talking with you. It's good to talk to you too, Paul. Thanks so much for having me and for the great questions. Yes. Um, uh, with uh, thank everyone for listening to this episode. If you like this conversation, please hit the like button um, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover this show. You can visit us anytime or send me a message at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. If you choose to become a paid subscriber, you get early access to episodes. Um, you also get to support my family, and that allows me to continue to do uh, these podcasts and to justify the, the, the time that I put into them. Um, you can also join us at Smart Catholics, the online community for Catholics, lot faithful conversations uh, that are unafraid of doubts and questions. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. That's smartcatholics.com. Until next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless.